We return this morning to our consideration of the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to weave together the messages, the thoughts that I have out of Mark's Gospel with some things relating to our country, as you'll see in a few moments. But I want to begin then by reading in Mark chapter 13 and verse 28, where Jesus said, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Well, several months ago when we began preaching through the Gospel of Mark in Sunday morning, on, in our Sunday morning service, because in these days of escalating hostility and encroaching evil, spreading evil, chaotic cultural upheaval, in a country where so oftentimes it seems that the innocent are the ones who get caught and who pay the price thought it good for us, I felt led for us to reacquaint ourselves then with the truth of who Jesus is, of what He did while He's here, what He is doing now, and what He is going to do in this world. It is Christ, you see, not the culture that will have the last word about what happens in this world. And on this weekend, when we set aside this time to honor and remember those who have died in the many battles our nation has fought through the less than 250 years of its existence, it is fitting, I think, to return to the consideration of the words of this passage, reminding us of what it's all about, where this world is headed, Not something that I made up, but something that Jesus Christ himself said to us. You remember the apostles came to Jesus asking them a question. What will be the sign of your coming, he said, and of the end of the world, of the end of the age? They asked him this question, and the answer that he gave was the longest answer that he gave to any question that he was ever asked during his earthly ministry. These are significant things. Jesus spelled them out almost Literally hours, almost on the day that he died, hours before he died on the cross. He took the time to spell out the things that we find here in Mark chapter 13. But before we go along to consider this parable today, uh, where Jesus gives us that now word, and you see that very first thing, now, now. And the title of my message today is, what do we do now? What do we do now? Now, Jesus said. So this is an application of all of this truth that he's given us in answer to that question, what is the sign of your coming and what is the sign of the end of the world? And he's given them all these things. We've seen him talk about a lot of things. He said, now these things are going to happen, but the end is not yet. But then he brings up something, verse 14, where he said, but when you see this, run. And Mark would add in that significant word that these were for people not who were listening, but who would read that passage, who would be alive and see it, and who could look in his word then and read about it. 
So after he's given us all this information, then we come to this passage now. Now, now what? What do we do? What do we do now? Now, Before we begin to consider this parable today, I I want to show you a pivotal passage of Scripture uh, that is a worldview-shaping passage. And I'm going to use that this morning, and I hope you'll stay with me. I'm going to use that passage this morning in order to bring us around to the truth of the text that Jesus gives us in Mark 13. This is a worldview-establishing passage. Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul said, many walk, many, many, many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Mark 13, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. On the one hand, Paul, the apostle, describes those who are the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. They are not our enemies, per se. They're the enemies of the cross. The enemies of the cross. They are not enemies toward which we are hostile. They are not enemies toward which we are angry. They are not enemies with whom we are actively engaging in battle. And in fact, Paul, as he introduces us to these people who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, he does so with a breaking heart. They're the enemies of the cross. And he said, I tell you that even weeping, and you can almost see the tears dropping from his face as he said it. They're the enemies, I tell you, weeping. We're not actively... Hostile against them. No, no. But they are the enemies of the cross. As Paul looked then at that Roman dominated world who had their part in rejecting Jesus Christ and crucifying him and were continuing on in that rejection, Paul was in prison in Rome as a result of that rejection. The persecution of Christians would should soon turn into massive bloodshed that Paul himself would die in the midst of. Thousands, millions perhaps would die under that persecution that was about to start. Enemies of the cross of Christ. The truth that Paul gives us about the enemies of the cross of Christ are just as true today in the United States of America as it was in ancient Rome. They were the enemies of the cross of Christ then. We ourselves then conduct ourselves in the midst of many who are the enemies of the cross. And he tells us some things about them, three of them. First of all, he tells us that their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. This doesn't mean that they face annihilation. 
Uh, that's a whole other false doctrine we're not going to go into today. It means they will be like the rich man in Luke chapter 16 who died and the Bible said in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Their end is destruction. People die every minute of every single day. Over the course of the time that I am preaching this sermon, between three and 4,000 people around the world will die. Most of them will die without Christ. Most of them will die in the reality that Paul describes. Their end is destruction. These enemies of the cross then, secondly, have a God, but it's not the God of heaven. Their God, he said, is their belly. That's not difficult for us to understand. He said their God is their human appetites and desires. That is, they have made a God out of their human desires. They give their worship to their desires. They give their honor to their desires. They give their allegiance to their fleshly appetites. What they count and consider to be most important. What they will give anything to. What they'll give anything for. What they'll give their lives to and for. What they'll give the lives of their children for. What they'll give other people's lives for. Their fleshly appetites. Their fleshly desires. These enemies of the cross are headed for destruction. They worship their fleshly appetites and desires. Their glory then is their shame because they mind earthly things. They don't think about heaven. They're not thinking about God. And therefore the things that they should be ashamed of, they are in fact glorying in. And rejoicing in. Instead of causing embarrassment or humiliation, they stand unblushing without shame, without disgrace. They can conceive of and carry out the most hideous behavior imaginable and even things we can't imagine. Never feel a moment's hesitation. It's not just the things that played out down in South Texas this week that caused that to happen. That's not the only time it happens. It does happen every now and then to remind us that this is happening every day in this country, all over this country. People do things without blushing, without embarrassment, without shame, without hesitation, without any sense of disgrace. They ought to be ashamed of it, but they're not. They glory in it. Those are the enemies of the cross. That's what Paul says they were living among in their day in the Roman Empire of ancient times. It is what we live among and work among and go to school among. In the United States of America today. Those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They're in destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Because they mind earthly things. But. Our citizenship he said. Is in heaven. Another side of that equation. Here's one side. A world full. Many. Many. A world full of people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. We're not hostile toward them. We love them. We want to see them saved. 
here we are. Where are we then? We're talking about worldview. What are we? Our citizenship, he said, is in heaven. And though we love the United States of America, we know as believers in Christ that our citizenship in heaven takes precedence over our citizenship of any earthly nation. I was born in the USA. And I'm thankful for that. Others in this service and some watching at home would not have that testimony. Your testimony is you chose. You chose to become a citizen of this country. And I'm glad to be able to tell you that under the Constitution of the United States, you are ever bit as much a citizen of this country as one who was born here. You can't run for president. Aside from that, maybe a couple other things. This is your country too. You chose it. I was born here. We love the United States of America. But I'm not just a citizen of the United States. I am a believing citizen of the United States. I'm a, I'm a Christian citizen of the United States. And Christian comes first. We are citizens of heaven. And he then tells us two things that or true, or, 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 or gives us something that, that is also true. We are eagerly then waiting for the Savior, and there are two things we're expecting then that Savior to do. I've got to move faster, to, or y'all got to listen faster, one. Two things we expect our Savior to do. Number one, to transform our lowly bodies. <laughs> Amen for that. And number two, He is going to subdue all things unto Himself. So we're citizens of heaven from which we eagerly wait, eagerly wait. Are you looking for Jesus to come today? We eagerly wait for the Savior who will transform our vile bodies and who will subdue all things unto himself. Did I tell you today that this is a worldview establishing passage? We live in a place, in a world where many, many are the enemies of the cross of Christ. But we live as citizens of heaven looking for the return of our Savior. And while we are thankful for our country and thankful and we appreciate and honor those who have died for it, we acknowledge our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nations rise, nations fall, but His truth is marching on. So as the disciples came to Jesus at that pivotal moment so long ago in Mark 13, asking Him, what are the signs and Jesus gave them a bunch. They, they, knew, they knew things were happening. They saw him ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. They knew what that meant. It would only be a few days later, though, that they would watch him being crucified. And the crime for which he was crucified was spelled out and nailed to the cross above him. King of the Jews. Romans knew what he was. Jews knew what he was. They rejected him crucified him. They thought they were done with him. Oh, I can't wait to get to that part of the story. Oh, we're almost there. 
as Jesus went along then telling them about the signs that they were to look for, the signs of His coming, of His return, the signs when His kingdom would be established. And He talks to them about several things. He brought up the book of Daniel to them. And Daniel talked about that abomination of desolation, the Antichrist. And, and so Jesus has pointed them to all those things. He pointed them to that last three and a half years of the tribulation when the world would experience the wrath of God as never before and billions would die. And then His kingdom would be established and He'd bring healing to the world for a thousand years. Understanding the great truth then of our citizenship that is in heaven Understanding that as citizenship of, citizens of heaven, we live and work and do business and go to school with those who are the enemies of the cross. What do we do with this? What do we do with it? And Jesus gave four parables, as he so often did, that we'll consider over the next few weeks. Four parables uh, that gives us the answer to that question. What do we do now? Now. Now. And the first thing he tells us to do, you need to learn this parable, the parable of the fig tree. The parable is very straightforward. It's made more understandable by the fact that Jesus gave us the interpretation of the parable. Just because the truth is straightforward and the interpretation has been given doesn't mean that there hadn't been a lot of arguing about this passage over the years. So let's take a quick look at it. We use this formula every time we look at a parable. We see the parable itself. This one's easy. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. This is not complicated for us. We know exactly what this is. We see the trees greening up and putting forth leaves. We know it's springtime. When they bud, they turn red or pink, and we see those white flowers down, and we know it's springtime. In my opinion, spring does not begin till the dogwoods bloom. They can put whatever they want to on the calendar. Spring starts, really, when the dogwoods. But some of you might like the daffodils. That's okay. I'm just, that's, you can have your doctrine. I'll have mine. Spring begins when the dogwoods bloom. When the trees bud, we know that's springtime. When they put on leaves, huh, we know summer's coming. It may be the end of May, almost 1st of June, but July is a coming. And August comes after. Those of you that have moved to Arkansas from another part of the country, get ready. <laughs> Summer is coming. We don't wonder about it. We don't sit down and puzzle about it. When summer is here, we all know it. Amen? Jesus said, when you see the fig tree putting on leaves, you know it's summertime. It was a time when we could look down through the woods and you might could see 100 yards, maybe 150. But now you can't see 25 yards because the leaves have obscured your view. You know it. The leaves are on the trees. Summers are coming. We understand what this parable is. And he gives us the application. So also, verse 29, when you see these things, what things? The things he had just told them. The things he had just told them. When you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
If you apply the rules of biblical interpretation to this passage of Scripture, there's no room really for doubt about what Jesus is saying, although a lot of doubt has been created, and I've got caught up in that myself. Because we have to understand what these things are speaking of. But that these things he's speaking of is what he has been talking to them. It started back in verse 14 when he said, When you shall see the abomination of desolation, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. So Mark again tells them this is for the readers, not the hearers. Jesus was talking to that immediate audience, but people who would read this, they would see him, that is the Antichrist, and... It would be a sign to them to run. That's what Jesus said, verse 14. The rise of the Antichrist. The wars and plagues and pestilences that would come in the last three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation period. He spoke of the times where even the heavens themselves will be shaken. The mysterious power that science is still trying to figure out that holds the universe together and something is going to happen to that mysterious power and suddenly we'd see signs in the heavens above and all hell would be breaking loose on this earth. The time of God's judgment will have come. And anybody who reads Mark's gospel, anybody who was alive during that time and reads this gospel and reads what Jesus said, they will know without any doubt that this is that time. Just like you and I know when summer is here, when this time of judgment breaks loose on this world, the people who are left here will know it. They'll know it. And as a result, Jesus then gives them the answer, the answer that they had sought. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the time, the sign of the end of the world? When you see these things begin to come to pass, then he says, the time of my coming will be at the door. And remember, this is a three and a half year time period that Jesus is talking about. And I'll say it again, not even a presidential cycle, three and a half years of unprecedented judgment upon the world. When that thing gets started then, Jesus says a couple of things. First thing he says is that this generation shall not pass until all these things shall be fulfilled. This event is not going to be drawn out over decades and eons and millennia when it starts and gets going, when it gets to this point, when that Antichrist has established his kingdom, when that last three and a half years of unprecedented judgment upon this planet, when it gets started, it is not going to draw out. It's not going to start and stop. It's not going to be something that you see this and then it might be another 150 years and you see something else. No. He said, once this happens, it's going to happen and my coming is going to be at the door. You know that it's going to be close. Three and a half years close. Second, he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. It is the word of Jesus Christ. The one who says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is His truth that will play out. No matter how much hostility there is to Him, no matter how how much opposition there is to Him, no matter how much rejection there is of Him, His truth will carry the day. No matter how much the natural order might seem to be working for the man of sin and his kingdom for a while, the truth of Jesus Christ will remain. What's that mean for us then, living in the now? It means that what Jesus says in this passage is going to happen. 
It will happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said. Jesus said. Jesus said it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. What I have said, Jesus said, is going to happen. And it will. No doubt about it. It will. Now I want to give you a couple of things as quickly as I can about some of the other views of this parable because they're significant. Uh, I've told you before, there are many people who embrace various forms of belief known as preterism. One of the most highly respected followers of a modified form of preterism is a man named R.C. Sproul. Some of you may have read his works. He's a very popular author today. Uh, Preterists believe that when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., then all of the prophecies by Jesus were fulfilled and that we've been living in the reign of Christ ever since. The church, within their view, becomes the agency by which the reign of Christ is being perpetuated in the world, and so the world will keep getting better and better. Some even believe that Jesus actually returned, and that we're living in the post-return of Christ era. It's heady stuff. They build a lot of arguments for it. The best thing I can do for you about preterism is when you start reading some of that stuff, Close your browser and erase your history. If you're not computer literate, that just means turn away from it. Jesus, the Bible tells us to do that. From such things, turn away. You don't even need to look at it. There's two quick reasons why we reject the preteristic ideas. First of all, nothing happened in 70 A.D. that met Jesus' qualification of a time of judgment that had never been seen before. Yes, Jerusalem was put under siege. Yes, Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans. Yes, the temple was was ransacked and burned and looted. Uh, Yes, they pried the stones apart because when they burned the temple, the gold ran down in the cracks and they wanted to get it all. Yes, what Jesus said did indeed happen. But that's not unusual. Things like that have happened before and have happened since. As bad as it was, wars and rumors of war, Jesus told himself this, isn't it? Nothing happened then that corresponds to the things we see in Revelation that John wrote well after 70 A.D., by the way. And he promised still a lot of things that were coming. Now, in their defense, the preterists have a way of explaining all that off. Uh, away and I'll leave it to him. I'm not even going to waste time by giving it to you. Uh, the book of Revelation was written. It was written in anticipation of the events it describes and there is nothing historically that fulfills the promises of that great tribulation of the book of Revelation. Perhaps most tellingly, <laughs> um, we're not living in a time of peace. If this is all there is to the millennial reign of Christ, there's not much to it. And so the preterists who want us to believe that we're already living in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, I I think it's just absurd. By far and away, the most popular other view of the parable of the fig tree relates to the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. And there were many people, and I grew up hearing this. I, I heard it in pulpit after pulpit and message after message. I've been taught it. I've read it in books that when Israel was reestablished as a nation in 1948, Uh, that that meant the fig tree had put on its leaves. The parable of the fig tree referred to the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. It was a very, very, very popular thing. I listened to it. I heard it all the time. 
Uh, they told us that uh, generation in the Bible was 40 years, and so we could expect the, uh, the events of the Great Tribulation. Uh, you say, Brother Rich, you're making this up. No, I'm not, and there's many people in this building right here that have heard this same stuff, just like I did. That we could expect to hear and uh, to see the tribulation begin in the latter part of the 80s and that Jesus was going to come back in the 1980s because generation of time in Scripture is 40 years and Israel was regathered in 1948. Therefore, in the latter part of the 80s, this thing would play out. I grew up believing that. But, of course, the 80s came and went, and the 90s came and went, the 2000s, double alts, as we let call them, came and went, uh, the two ten, 2010s, and now we're in the 2020s. I, I did believe this once. When the 80s came and went, the view began to change. Uh, then we began to think uh, that the generation wasn't so much like a time of 40 years, but instead it was just the people who were old enough to see it and know what was happening, that generation. And we know what that generation is. We call them either the greatest nation generation, if you're Tom Brokaw, or the World War II generation, if you're almost anybody else. And so the, the World War II generation then would not pass until all these things would be fulfilled. A person 20 years old in 1948 would be 94 today. I, I looked at Brother Hudson in case you didn't. I, I'm not sure he's 94. Uh, 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 or a person, uh, maybe it was born in 1948. Maybe I didn't get my, my math right. We, we, see, we, we're not there yet. We're not quite there yet. But we are rapidly nearing the end of that generation. And I want to stop here for just a moment and say thank you, God, for giving us one more chance to hear these two old soldiers uh, speak to us about Memorial Day. Glad we did it. Well, the thinking morphed again until another generation was on the scene. That's the baby boomers, my generation. And you can look at me and tell, you know what, the baby boomers are getting older too. And so we say that now there are those who hold the view, say that, uh, you know, there's somebody, some people who were born then in 1948, that generation then Jesus was saying, would not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. I want to say it very plainly to you today. They may be right. That may happen. Quite frankly, I hope it does. But if we apply the rules of biblical interpretation of the passage, we'll see that Jesus hasn't changed the subject. He's still answering the disciples' question. He's telling them about the signs of His coming and the signs of the end of the world or age. And He gave them something specific to look for, uh, the appearance of the abomination of desolation. And He promised them when that happened, this generation shall not pass until all these things shall be fulfilled. I believe today that what Jesus was actually doing, if you look at the context, he was telling us then that these things, once they get going, will culminate quickly. And it will culminate, culminate with his return to the earth and to the establishment of his kingdom, punctuated by that great statement, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. What does this mean to us? Well, first of all, it means we can live and die by the truth of this book. 
And we can know that neither our life nor our death or anybody else's life or death is going to change even one of the truths that Jesus gave us. Paul would later write of this truth telling us that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Brother Rich, oh, but what if you find yourself on your deathbed? Are you still going to believe that? Yeah, what if you died and it hadn't happened? You know what? I'll believe it more after I'm dead than I do right now. Because after I'm dead, I'll be with the Lord. I'll be seeing Him face to face. And then I'll know that what He said is just as real. And I'll live in an anticipation of the time when this body will be reunited with the Spirit that has gone on to be with the Lord. Yes, we live and die by the truth that Jesus gave us. Because that truth is ruling over the affairs of history. What does it mean? Paul said it best when he gave us that truth. Wherefore, he said, comfort one another with these words. See, the truth about the return of Christ to this earth is not designed to scare us to death. It's designed to remind us that we win. Not because that we're special, but because our Savior, Jesus Christ, is special. Because He has won the victory, and thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But that victory comes only to those who are redeemed. Have you received Christ as your Savior? If you have, have you followed Him in baptism? Are you serving Him and one of His churches? Because His truth, folk, His truth is marching on. Let's stand together, please.